0: 720 wgn We're going to get to Mike Leonard in just a moment. We're looking for an answer to the question of the day, which is Michigan, first state to do this. Wisconsin close behind. Illinois following their lead 158 years later. Just try and get one or two guesses here. Let's go to Marilyn on line one. Hey, Marilyn, how you doing? I'm fine. You don't sound fine, Marilyn. You you sound like you're trying to convince yourself.
1: No, 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 no. I had a huge uh, hack in my bank account, and I got it straightened out, so trust me, I'm fine. Hey,
0: there you go. (laughs) All right. You'll have to tell us how you did that on my other show, Your Money Matters. Okay, what's your guess? (laughs) Statehood. Illinois became a state in 1818. Actually, we beat Michigan by about oh. uh, 20 years. They didn't become a state till 1837. And Wisconsin, not till 1848. So it's a good guess, just not the answer. Okay, Marilyn? Congrats not on the bank account thing, okay? Okay, all right. Thank you. All right, let's get one more in here. This is a joint answer from Laura and Todd on Line 5. What are you guys calling together here next to the phone? Yeah, we're driving home. So we call hey. together. All right. Okay. Uh, Where are you guys driving home from? From
1: Pana, Illinois, back to Chicago.
0: Okay. All right. So, Lauren Todd, what's your guess?
1: It's uh, women's right to vote.
0: It's a great guess because Wisconsin was actually the first state to ratify the 19th Amendment allowing women to vote. Illinois was also one of the first states, though, a little bit later on, and actually Michigan came a little bit after that. So it's a great guess, just not the answer. Okay, Lauren Todd, have a safe rest of your trip, okay?
1: All right, thank, thank you. you.
0: Oh, there you go. They got both of them now. Okay, we'll try and get some more answers a little later on, but let's get our first guest on the line here from Leonard Trial Lawyers. Mike Leonard, how you doing, bud? John, how's it going today? I think with this overcast weather, we've probably got maybe
1: half a million more listeners because no one's doing anything outside, or else maybe 10 more listeners. I don't know which one. (laughs)
0: Let's go with the first guess, Mike. There you go. Let's go with a half million. Yeah, it's a big show here today because when the weather gets bad, some people, uh, of course, want to go for a little drive and turn on the radio. So, Mike, I, the first thing I want to ask you, obviously, we've had some different developments, well, sort of in the uh, Trump, President, former President Trump affidavit and the uh, FBI um, executing the search warrant. And last week, and I've been really kind of echoing what you've been saying to other people, that them getting President Trump's, uh, the documents that he had may have been the end of it, and you suggested perhaps that there's very little chance that you think that President Trump uh, would ever be charged with anything. Does ever, anything that has happened in the last week change your mind on that?
1: No, not yet. I mean, the, the big developments this week were the court in Florida, the federal court judge uh, considered a motion brought by a large number of journalists who were arguing that because this is such an important uh, human interest and public interest story, the circumstances leading to the search of the Trump property, that the affidavit should be unsealed. And as you and I talked about last week, John, the The attorneys from the Justice Department had to go to the judge several weeks ago, and they provided him with a very detailed affidavit, which, in their minds, proved that there was probable cause that a crime could have been committed. And on that basis, that affidavit, the judge went ahead and issued the search warrant. So that's that's the issue that was in court this week.
0: Okay, and what did you think about... I mean, the Justice Department says, well, we don't want this unsealed because it could reveal information about a broader investigation or further investigation. And a lot of people point to that and say, see, they are looking at stuff that is different than what just happened in the search.
1: Well, there's a couple of points there. I mean, number one, it's highly unusual, almost unheard of for an affidavit that forms the basis for a search warrant to be unsealed, meaning given to the public while an investigation was taking place because, as you know, the mere issuance of the search warrant isn't a charge of any crime. So typically the search warrants are, are never disclosed. You get them in discovery in the case once you are charged because, of course, you don't want the world or the attorneys or the defendant knowing that you're investigating them, what information you already have, who you've talked to, who are your sources. So there's a lot of things you want to protect. And, of course, they, did, they have made some statements in court this week that it could impact other investigations. You know, what that means is anyone's guess. But all that would point to is, yeah, they might be investigating him for other things. But I guess it doesn't change my view that I don't think they're going to charge him here. But we probably should talk for a minute about what the judge actually ruled this right. week. Right.
0: Right? It was surprising. The judge says he's leaning towards releasing some of the evidence presented by the U.S. Justice Department. He seems skeptical of their argument that they couldn't redact things or remove certain things, and it still would allow some light to be shed, kind of charting a middle path. Is that unusual?
1: Well, it's very unusual. I mean, typically never at all are the affidavits released at this point in a proceeding, and and there really isn't proceeding in terms of any charges against the former president. But it's probably not really going to turn out to be a middle course, John, because what he said was, Hey, government, go back to the drawing board, give me a redacted copy of the affidavit, meaning you black out, literally black out the parts that you think that the public shouldn't see and you know, give me the remainder of what you think could be publicly disclosed. So the problem is going to be they're going to take a thick pen to this thing. And their position is going to be, hey, judge, you know, we really have to redact 95 percent of it or or some crazy amount. And as the judge himself said this week, look, a lot of times when you get a redacted affidavit, it's just gobbledygook. It's gibberish. And he kind of forewarned everybody and said, look, even if I let some of the stuff be redacted and disclosed to you all, you you, the public, you know, I'm not telling you or giving you any expectations about whether it's going to be helpful to you. In other words, what he's saying is. What he's saying is, hey, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little bit, but it's probably not going to be much, and it'll, it'll probably be along the line along the lines, John, of what we talked about last week, where it'll probably be limited to things of a very basic, generic nature. For instance, we had discussions with ex attorney for Trump, or we received this compliance or non compliance. You know, the, kind of the steps that led to them telling the judge they had no other means other than search warrant. So. Once we get a redacted affidavit, I think we're all probably going to be pretty disappointed with, with what we actually get to see.
0: Couldn't you argue that a redacted one causes more confusion even? It causes more speculation because you get a little bit of a taste here and there, maybe a name or person A, and you start you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, and it's all wrong.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there there is that danger that by giving the public some, it's going to lead for a lot of speculation and a lot of clamoring for more. But, but, there's no way that this judge is really going to let out sensitive information that would compromise the investigation That's just not going to happen. so you know the justice department, um like all federal prosecutors you know they they want to give the judge sort of a, a parade of horribles, you know how bad this would be, how it would compromise their investigation, but you know giving out generic information about kind of what led what, it, what led to and ended their negotiations that that's not going to hurt anybody but I think all in all, we're not going to get much, and we're all going to have to still, to still wait and see.
0: Can we take a peek behind the robe for a second? Depends what you're wearing, John, but yeah, <laughs> I think we can. <laughs> yeah, I set him up, you knock him down. No, so what I wanted to do was... Uh, this we is the same... We didn't practice one, did we? No, we didn't. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. This is the okay. magistrate judge, Bruce Reinhardt who approved of the Mar-a-Lago FBI search in the first place, right? It's the same judge. Exactly. So that's okay. it's
1: appropriate for him to to make the call. But you got to keep in mind, let's just say that he makes a particular ruling and says, hey, this much of it, you know, beyond what you, Justice Department lawyers say, should be public. If he makes a ruling adverse to them or they think is adverse, they could actually appeal that and tie this thing up even longer. You know, right. so this really could be a football for quite some time. But, but what was kind of your inquiry about so, Judge Reinhardt and his robes?
0: So a- so after the ruling that he made, allowing the search, of course, a lot of people attacked him in personal ways. Some of it was really crazy. And I know judges are supposed to just be so impartial and so immune to that criticism, that critique. But then you have another high-profile courtroom situation involving the same players. I don't know how any human would be able to tune out the noise from outside the courtroom and not at least try and offer a cookie to the side that you didn't that they didn't get their way the last time. Do you see what I'm kind of asking? Like, as to not yeah. appear to be in the Department of Justice's pockets, does he have to sort of show that? Well, maybe I will allow a little of this to be released. I'm not suggesting that's what happened here, and I know they're above that. Well, I think they are, but I'm just highlighting that that's hard.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, let, let's face it. There there are public considerations that go into judges' mind and often play into their opinions even if they don't tell us so, right? You know, you may have a high-profile sentencing of of a defendant who's well-known, and clearly the judge understands that it's getting a lot of publicity, it's getting a lot of attention, and that people will look at it as something that might be precedential or might be taking a stand. So they're certainly well aware of all these factors, and you bring up a great point with this judge. I mean, he's been attacked. He's had death threats made against him. Um, he's been, you know, vilified uh, publicly by the side that believes that he's, you know, pro, pro-government, you know, pro-FBI. So there's no question that it's got to enter his mind. But at the same time, you've got to keep in mind that it's extremely unusual to give the public anything from an affidavit. OK, so to the extent that he gives the public something here, which he's going to do, gives him a, a few cookies or nuggets, as you put it, that'll be extraordinarily And and that's why the Justice Department doesn't like this because they think this sets a horrible precedent because, you know, they they never want an affidavit unsealed while they're still investigating somebody and trying to make the decision whether to charge them with a crime. So you're right. He's definitely aware of it. He's personally aware of it from being, you know, subject to death threats and other threats. So uh, can it it play in the decision-making? Absolutely. But I don't think we should expect him to go too far in disclosing a lot of information. But he's certainly pushing back against the Justice Department, which I, which I always
0: like to see. Well, yeah, you're a federal defense attorney. That makes sense. Um, But I guess everyone (laughs) should like a little pushback, right? Like, no one wants a freewheeling Department of Justice and FBI that can go anywhere they want all the time and doesn't get any pushback. It's a natural check that we have built into our system. And, uh, you know, there's going to be ones you like, ones you don't. But I feel like that's an important check to have there. Um, By the way, I I do want to open this up to any questions you all have. 312-981-7200. Because there's a lot of moving pieces here. And this show is not about punditry or too much looking into the crystal ball. This show's about helping people understand this process uh, to become better informed citizens wherever they can, including myself. That's why I sit in this chair and not an actual lawyer, so I can break things down. Mike, we did have a question from the 773 that wants to know if there were charges against the former president, would he then would the department of justice then try to uh, bar them from releasing a copy for the affidavit for search warrant or would that then become public if there were charges would we know a little bit more about the background or would that wait till a potential trial perhaps
1: well the answer is a big maybe so um, what happens typically is that is the lawyers would certainly get a copy of the affidavit that led to the search warrant because it might be the subject of a motion practice you know for instance if Trump was charged with a crime, his attorneys would have, have access to that affidavit. They could make a legal argument to the court that there wasn't probable cause. There shouldn't have been a search in the first place and try to suppress what was seized from Mar-a-Lago, right? Um, and it, it might also make the judge believe that, well, if he's actually charged um, that this information is, is you know, it's going to be public eventually. Why not disclose that now? But there's, but there's still problems with that because you have a person facing charges, again, you don't really want public information about who witnesses are or True. who they've talked to or whose sources are. So the answer is a big maybe, but the fact that he does get charged would, would certainly give more reason to release it publicly. But, again, there's all those countervailing arguments that uh, lawyers would argue against. What, what was interesting, John, this week um, was the fact that the Trump camp did have counsel at that hearing, uh, but they didn't take any position. You know, they were not arguing to the court, hey, uh, lease this information. Give, give us a, give us a complete redaction of it. They didn't do that at all. Instead, they just stayed silent. So, you know, publicly, they've made a lot of pronouncements like, hey, we want all this stuff to be released. But when it comes to the court proceedings, they did not file any motions to unseal the affidavit or, or give a redacted version to the public. And, you know, so what they're saying publicly in court are kind of two different things so far.
0: Interesting stuff. All right, Mike Leonard, uh, you're going to stay on the line. Leonard Trial Lawyers is where you can go to get more information about what all that Mike does. And we'll get into that a little bit later on in this hour as well. And your questions too, 312-981-7200 after a look at the news here on WGN. 720 WGN. Hey, everyone. John Hanson. This is Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers. LeonardTrialLawyers.com. You can give him a call, 312-815-6572. Mike, uh, I know you've been on a bunch, but for maybe our newer listeners, who uh, what sorts of uh, cases you take on? You're a federal defense attorney. You do some whistleblower laws, too, right?
1: Yeah. So what we do is on the criminal side, we primarily focus on representing individuals in federal criminal cases here in Chicago and throughout the country. And we also sometimes rep- represent them in state criminal proceedings. And on the civil side, we regularly represent individuals who are bringing whistleblower cases and sometimes discrimination cases against large companies. So we're on the, what we call the plaintiff side. So, Joe, we represent the good, the good guys on both sides of our
0: practice. Okay. I had an angry call, Mike, I want to tell you about during the uh, commercial break. You uh, ready for this? No, it's fine. I, I I appreciate I appreciate any feedback. Honestly, you're always welcome to uh, dispute anything I say. Certainly, and our guests, and uh, we appreciate all calls and texts on the matter. You can keep them coming three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. And I wanted to bring this up only because I just want to make sure that we're understanding each other and that the listeners are too. When we talk about the former president's case, the caller was suggesting that you know laws are there for a reason. You shouldn't just break the law. And that uh, President Trump, uh, if he if he broke a law, should be, and we, and that you and I should be ashamed for suggesting otherwise. Um, I don't think either of us were suggesting that the president should or shouldn't. That's not our uh, what we're analyzing here. You were simply suggesting that you don't think there will be charges.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not taking the position that he shouldn't be charged. I think uh, based upon what we know so far, clearly there there's a lot of reason to believe that he could be charged under the Espionage Act, possibly for possibly obstruction of obstruction of justice for also uh, violations of the presidential records act there's clearly uh at least three three different federal crimes that potentially he could be charged with although it's so early we don't know what the evidence is going to shake out to be so i was never saying that they shouldn't prosecute him i'm just making the prediction the bold prediction maybe that he's not going to be charged for the document issues and I, i may turn out to be wrong but as you know, federal prosecutors have a lot of discretion to charge somebody or not charge somebody. And after after gathering all this evidence, if they're not convinced that they're going to win their case, you know, with proof beyond a reasonable doubt, they're not going to charge them because they don't want to lose the case and they don't want to be the subject of ridicule uh, and, and the pub- the publicness of this matter. So I'm just making a prediction. I don't think for the documents issue, they will charge him. I could be wrong, but it'll be fun to see whether it happens or not. But I never made the suggestion that He shouldn't be charged. And In fact, it is bothersome, you know, from someone who represents criminal defendants all the time, especially in federal court, the selectivity of who's prosecuted is very frustrating. Uh, It's not just the Trump case. It's all sorts of cases where you might represent an individual who did allegedly the exact same thing of five or six or ten other people, and a number of them aren't charged at all and who seem to be much more culpable than your client. And but there's really nothing you can do except howl at the wind that it's not fair and, and they've they've misused their discretion, but that doesn't get your case kicked out.
0: Right. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we laid that all out for folks. And also, and in that wane of whether they are going to charge the former president, not only do they have to take into consideration all that you mentioned about the public scrutiny and ridicule, but what you were saying, the likeliness of a conviction, I mean, we've only heard from, and we really haven't heard much, but we've only seen the actions of the DOJ. Of course, the former president should be afforded a strong defense that you know he's going to be able to provide for himself. They could argue that they were obtained illegally, that the president didn't know this and that. The other thing, I mean, there's a lot of. We've only been really seeing one side of this thing, and in a court of law, the former president would be entitled to as strong a defense as he's able to produce.
1: Well, yeah, the problem is so far we we have such little information. Okay, we know a search warrant was issued. We know the types and categories of documents that they were seeking. We don't know which ones they found. We don't know who took them under what circumstances. We don't even know right now. You know, were they really of the top secret and secret, you know, the the highly classified levels that have been talked about? They may be, but they might not be documents that are great significance to the national defense or something else like that. And and we we talked about last week this Espionage Act. It's going to require more than just a showing that he had the documents. It's got to show that, you know, they they were somehow furthering the national interest or national defense. And he attempted to use them, you know, for purposes against them. So there's there's a lot of considerations. We just it's so early here yeah. uh to make you know, to make arguments about what's gonna happen, but it will be fun to see if I'm proven dead wrong uh and they do charge him for the documents or, or, or whether I'm right. You know, that's that's the fun part of this.
0: Yeah, if you're dead wrong, well, we're going to have a special Let's Get Legal whatever day that is, and uh, no, I'll call you on in. No, I'm just kidding, Mike. I mean, you're making a prognostication based on your expertise. That's why we have you on the program. 312-981-7200. You can lodge any other complaints to the department. A rating will take it all down, or you can go ahead and text it on in. And uh, no, I seriously, I do appreciate people uh, chiming in because it gives us a chance to maybe rephrase something in a way if we had uh, leaned one way or another or it appeared that we did that. I want to get off uh, the, pre- the former president's stuff a little bit, but uh, in big news in, in, in a case that you represent about charges in a federal gun case, correct?
1: Yeah, it's always fun on a Friday night to get a call from prosecutors, federal prosecutors who, who are telling you that they're going to dismiss entirely the case that we were scheduled to go to trial on Tuesday of next week. So we were set to go to trial in federal court on Tuesday, coming out in, in a few days here uh, on a federal gun case. And so, They told us probably 5 o'clock Friday afternoon that they're going to move the judge to dismiss everything, which, again, is is a one in a trillion, and it's uh, music to our ears.
0: Well, you've had that twice, though, in in a couple of weeks, though.
1: I know, I know. I I told (laughs) you uh, a couple months ago that this never happens, and now it's happened to us twice. So I feel very fortunate that you know we've done our jobs and our clients uh, have been released. But uh, this case was particularly gratifying because... Uh, The gentleman was charged earlier this year, and the facts were there were probably eight, anywhere from eight to ten people outside a Chicago residential building. And on one of those uh, Chicago Police Department poll cameras, um, someone in the booth uh, believed that they had seen uh, some of the people out there with what they thought were firearms. You know, they, they couldn't exactly pinpoint what they possessed, but they used the poll camera evidence to go get a search warrant of the residential house. And so they went in there and, and searched for hours and they did come up with two firearms and a BB gun. Okay. So then the question was, you know, since my client didn't even leave, leave, uh, live in that house, you know, how could they potentially prove that it was, that it was his firearm if it even was a firearm. So, you know, we, we demanded what's called a speedy trial, meaning we wanted to go to trial very quickly in federal court, which is a somewhat unusual, tactics because typically the government has so much more information than you do and you need time to process it. But we thought very strongly about our defense, demanded trial, got a trial date real quickly. And then a lot of things developed over the last couple of months. You know, we had expert witnesses and uh, the, the government set the gun out that they said our client possessed to get DNA testing on that. And the government expert came back and said, no, there's a major contributor of DNA to this gun, but it's not the defendant, which obviously was huge news to us. Um, and then the second thing that happened is we had an expert who looked at the firearm that the government was charging our client with and compared that to the object that the defendant had when the police looked at the pole camera and the expert said, no, these objects cannot be the same because there's something very particular about the trigger in, hmm. in the videos. So, We thought we had a very strong defense and a likelihood of getting a not guilty jury verdict, which is always extremely satisfying. But it's better when the government says, hey, we don't even have to go to trial. Your guy walks free and all charges are dismissed. So we we were very gratified. And, you know, you got to tip your cap slightly to the federal government because they could have taken the case to trial and, and seen what would have happened. But here. They actually appropriately exercised their discretion and said, we're not going to pursue the case, which, again, does not happen very often.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I know that a lot of people, uh, you know, when they hear, oh, it's a federal gun case, there's an assumption of guilt, and I know a lot of people are armed, I don't want to say armed, they are amped up about the gun rights issues and what's happening in certain communities, but at the end of the day, uh, the, the government still has to follow the rules and the, the chain of command, and the evidence has to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. This is, uh, as amped up as we are about certain issues, we still, you know, encourage everyone that should have a, an ample Defense on those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, and w- obviously, we all know there's a gun problem out there in Chicago and elsewhere, but I don't think many people want people convicted uh, when they didn't possess the gun. You know, it doesn't really serve any purpose. It doesn't advance the goal of getting guns off the street if you put people in prison who weren't the people who were manufacturing or possessing the gun. So uh, a great result, very exciting, and it makes my weekend a lot better, John, because I don't have to spend <laughs> 10 hours a day preparing for the trial. So I'm I'm happy for that reason as well.
0: Yeah, there you go. Okay, well, you can take a momentary, brief uh, uh, a breath of fresh air, Mike. We're going to take a quick commercial break. 312-981-7200, getting some good texts and questions on in. Add yours to the list, and we'll get to them next here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association of WGN. 720 WGN. It is 149. We got a few minutes left here with Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers. And you can go to leonardtriallawyers.com. L-E-O-N-A-R-D. Triallawyers.com. 312-815-6572 is how you can reach Mike and his team over there. All right, Mike, I got to ask you about the R. Kelly thing. And here's why is because I feel like we just got the news of his long sentence this past, uh, what was it, late June? We found out he was, uh, likely to spend 30 years behind bars. And then all of a sudden, he's popping up in the news again. And I'm not one to try and bury my head in the sand about very serious things, but it's something that has just dragged on forever. What is? Why is he back in court? I'm so confused. What is this trial that he's going through now? Sure. Um, so as you recall,
1: there was a, a initial federal prosecution in New York in federal court in Brooklyn some some months ago. And that case was under somewhat unique legal theory under the RICO Act, R-I-C-O, and mm-hmm. the federal prosecutors in New York were making the argument and bringing the legal case that Mr. Kelly operated his band as what's called a criminal enterprise. So it was a unique legal theory. that was. The, those were the federal charges in that particular case. Now, uh, go forward, and now we have a completely different federal prosecution for different charges. So in this case, There's no RICO allegations, but the the charges brought here in Chicago in federal court are based upon uh, Mr. Kelly's alleged production and use and transportation of child pornography. So a completely Mm. different federal statute. So you know, there's some there's some overlap in terms of the type of conduct that we're talking about, but it's under a completely different statutes and legal theories. And we probably should talk a little bit, John, about the background to this case because it originates from a cook county case like 20 years ago
0: okay yeah why don't you dive into that a little bit
1: yeah so i think what people are also maybe confused about they keep hearing about the cook county case so uh in 2002 in state court in illinois at 26 in california mr kelly was charged with having um sexual relations with a minor and that case ultimately went to trial in 2008 you know some 14 years ago And the key issue in that case was, who is the person in the video with Mr. Kelly? And the state's attorney's office was unable to prove who the person was or that it was a minor, and it resulted in the jury acquitting Mr. Kelly of the charges at that time. This case in federal court now harkens back to that case. What they're saying is that the minor in that video, who's now a witness in the federal court case, was coerced to essentially be kept away from the courthouse during that trial. And she now has testified in the federal case that indeed was her and that she detailed all the steps that were taken to keep her away from the courthouse. So it's sort of a a fraud upon the system type factual theory, right? So, So that's what we're hearing about now is the case in federal court in Chicago. There's been some, you know, really significant and troubling testimony so far, including from that minor who was, you know, allegedly kept away from the courthouse, you know, 14 years ago, her testifying, that's her. The video was shown to the federal jury under some very special circumstances so the public couldn't see it. So, you know, the the government's case is still going. They're still putting evidence on against Mr. Kelly for those actions.
0: So I um. I know it's not unusual. We've talked a lot about it on, the, on this show. In fact, you and I have chatted about uh, cases that are decided in the state court, and then the federal uh, court could also issue charges based on whether it's uh, hate crime or the, some level. But to have two federal cases on, on very similar things, I'm just so used to, like, they just roll all the charges into one big case versus two separate ones in two separate jurisdictions. I guess what I'm getting at is this unusual
1: It is. It is somewhat unusual for for a public figure like this, for them to handle it in two ways. I mean, quite honestly, there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, territory wrangling that went into this one. You know, you had federal prosecutors in New York, you know, badly wanting to bring a case against Mr. Kelly at the same time that Chicago federal prosecutors were badly wanting to bring a case against Mr. Kelly. So we all want to think that, They all work cooperatively. But the reality is, you know, they were trying to get to the courthouse door first, those two jurisdictions. And the New York case, they had to make some nexus to New York in order to make their case. And so they came up with kind of a unique legal theory. And, you know, they sort of were able to preempt the Chicago prosecutors in unsealing their case. So, you know, part of it is the notoriety of Mr. Kelly and those two different prosecutor offices badly wanting to bring the case. And clearly, you know, you could have you could have done it differently. But some of the some of the claims and charges in the Chicago federal case probably couldn't have been brought in New York because there's not an appropriate connection to the state of New York and and to that venue.
0: Right. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not discounting that there, there need to be charges and you need to set these precedents and you need to establish this sort of law and to test it out and to uh, bring justice for people. And uh, I'm not trying to discount. I just was curious about the irregularity of it. OK, I, well, we got about three minutes left. Mike. I wanted to ask you, you know, and we talked about the January 6th defendants uh, months ago when we were still kind of in the phase where there weren't uh, hugely serious um, uh, jail time sentences yet. Well, that's Started to change as we've started to get to some of the tougher uh, statutes that were broken, and juries deciding that in trial cases or judges in plea cases. I guess that's you know for for a long time people were saying why aren't these people being charged with stronger crimes? I guess it was just a matter of of time for the federal government to get through these cases that they viewed as as, as more substantial.
1: Yeah, well, well, two points. One, one point I want to make a, a correction or modification. You know, when I was talking about the federal gun case that has gone away, um, you know, my co-counsel in the case, oftentimes you co-counsel with someone who's not from your own firm. You work together for trial purposes. and That person was Gabriel Sancinetti, and she was extremely instrumental in bringing about that result. So I don't want to make you think that it was only the work of Leonard trial lawyers in that case, John, because Miss Sancinetti was was huge in bringing about that result for, for our client. Okay. Um, but as to, as to your question about the January 6th prosecutions, look, there were, there's hundreds of these cases that have been filed, including against a number of people from the state of Illinois. The easiest ones to adjudicate, to get a plea agreement in, in place, and to get a plea, were some of the more minor ones, you know, a mere trespass, where someone might have simply gone in there, not done anything other than, you know, wrongfully enter the building, but the more serious ones where people went in the building, might have had weapons, might have had other devices, might have made threats, might have made, went into members of Congress's offices. Those are, of course, more serious crimes, you know. And so those, of course, are going to have a more robust defense because the potential sentence is far greater than somebody trespassing into the building. And so they're going to be fought harder. There's going to be motion practice. The cases are going to take longer. But now we're seeing some of the more serious cases. People are getting some really harsh sentences, and I think a lot of people think those are appropriate because they view this as sort of a coup upon our government. And, you know, I know other people entirely disagree with that, but we're getting, we're getting to the more heart of some of the more serious activities in terms of what the defendant's conduct was that day.
0: For sure. All right, Mike Leonard, that's going to do it for today. LeonardTrialLawyers.com is where folks can go for more information. L-E-O-N-A-R-D, Triallawyers.com. The phone number 312-815-6572. Mike, I appreciate your time, okay? John, I enjoyed it. Thanks
1: a lot. Talk to you soon.
0: Yeah, we'll talk again very soon, I am sure of that.